Good morning, Woodland Hills. I'm Greg Boyd, a teaching pastor here at the church. It is great to be with you and worship with you and be in God's presence. I do, I, I, I share Brianna's excitement about this, this uh, baptism event. It's just a beautiful thing. And uh, if you can make that, uh, I encourage you to put that on your calendar and consider uh, taking these classes. Um, before I get into this message, I want to first give a shout out, thank you to Nicole, who did a fantastic job last week. Do you, was that not a powerful message? That was her first sermon, <laughs> her first full sermon. Uh, and that's, uh, that's a good first sermon, I'll tell you. Mine sucked, but uh, <laughs> there you go. Now, this morning, uh, we're, we're in a series on uh, moving pictures. And uh, I'm, we're, since this baptism thing's coming up, I'm going to talk about baptism. And so to get this off the ground, since we're always looking at movie clips and stuff and talking around them, we're going to look at this super profound statement in a movie uh, about baptism, all right? It's from the classic theological movie, O Brother, Where Art Thou? <laughs> Come on in, the water is fine. I got my sins all washed away. The preacher washed those sins away. The whole point of that little clip there is to say, that's not how you should think about baptism. <laughs> that's the wrong way to think about baptism. Uh, the right way is, well, we're telling this message, the heavenly wedding, uh, because the right way is to think about it as a wedding, as we'll get into this in a little bit. Uh, the, the kind of view of baptism that you saw illustrated in, O Brother, Where Art Thou, uh, is what I'd call magical baptism. It's magical thinking. Uh, here's what I mean by that. I'll illustrate it. So, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that I was a bad kid. I got in a lot of trouble. I was hyperactive, and, and authorities were always mad at me. Uh, and uh, I then drew the conclusion that God must be mad at me, because everyone else is. Uh, and I learned in first grade about this thing, this place called hell. And in this strict Catholic school that I was going to, the hell was a very, very terrible, nightmarish place that you never got out of. Uh, and that's where you go if God's mad at you. And so I developed this terrible fear of hell. I had nightmares about it all the time in first grade, six years old, having uh, terrible nightmares. And so I really wanted to find a way to escape hell. And uh, I learned that in, in the, there's this thing called confession in the Catholic Church. If you confess your sins to the priest, the priest can forgive your sins. And, and then you're off the hook, unless it's a mortal sin, in, in which case it leaves a stain. But uh, you're still forgiven. I never could figure that one out. But, uh, but see, the, we, we didn't have first confession until fourth, third or fourth grade. And I'm in first grade, so what if I die before I get to the third or fourth grade? I'll go to hell. So I'm really worried about this. And then I heard this teaching, which I'm sure I screwed up. I, 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 because I've never, I, I've never seen anything in the Catholic Church that says anything like this. But this is what I heard as this desperate first grader. This nun gave this teaching that, that as I remember it, um, that there's nine services. If you go to Mass, a special Mass, for nine weeks in a row and pray this special prayer called novenas. Any Catholics in the house remember those novenas? Yeah, I never quite understood them, but, but I remember the term. So nine consecutive novenas, and you pray to the Virgin Mary, she will make sure that you'll go to heaven. You're guaranteed to go to heaven. And I just, I just lit up like, this is my ticket. Uh, and I raised my hand. So guaranteed? Like, like no backs, no do-overs? No. As I remember it now, I don't think this was what she was teaching, but this is how I... My, I see I was screwed theologically from a very young age, so that explains a lot. But, uh, um, that, yeah, you're guaranteed. So the tr trouble is, I mean, it seemed like such a great deal. Uh, you put in nine weeks, and boom, you can coast the rest of your life. You know, no more nightmares. 
So trouble is, I am six years old and I don't drive. And so I started begging my parents, my dad and my mom, will you take me to these special masses? I think they're on like Wednesday or Friday night. And, and I, I want to pray these novenas to Mary so, I, so I'd be saved. And, and my dad would have nothing to do with it. My, my, my stepmom was, was, uh, was you know, a real strict Catholic lady. Uh, and she was impressed that I wanted to go to mass so badly. Um, and so she said she'd take me to one. But one's not going to cut it. You need to go to nine consecutively in a row. Uh, and and then my stepmother said, well, Greg, look, at, I, you misunderstood something because going to a special mass nine times in a row and praying novenas, that's not, that, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to go to heaven. Only one thing guarantees that you go to heaven, and that's that you stop sinning. <laughs> it's like, well, that gig's not going to work for me. Uh, <laughs> besides, I believe what the nuns say more than what she says because the nuns wear these holy clothes in pre-Vatican Catholicism. Uh, they, there's these habits, and they have groceries, and they look holy. So I'm going to take what they say over what my stepmom says. But I still couldn't get to the Mass, so I never got that guarantee. And I've been insecure ever since. <laughs> so the, I, had, I had a magical view of these novenas. If you just do this formula, do this thing, engage in these particular behaviors, then you'll get something from God that you want. You'll get the salvation. And that's what, that's what magic's all about. Magic is, is, is engaging in a certain set of behaviors or, or reciting formulas or in having rituals that, that get you to get God or the gods or a saint or whatever to give you what you want. It's kind of like that Monty guy, that, let's make a deal. Uh, what was his name? Monty... Monty Hall, that's it. Yeah, let's make a deal. It's, it's making a deal with God. I'll, I'll do this, and then you give me that. And it's magical kind of thinking. So this, this in the old brother, where art thou? This guy had a magical view of baptism. It seems like they all did. Um, where it, it's, uh, he's seen these people getting baptized. It's like, here, here's the deal. If I just get dunked, well, then, then all my sins will be washed away. And, and, and see, it's magic because it doesn't depend on the state of his heart or how his life has changed after that. It's just the act itself does it. That's why the preacher never asked any questions of this guy. He's just, oh, you come up here, I'll, I'll dunk you. And that magically washes those things away. It's magical thinking. There's several ne negative implications for magical thinking. And magical thinking permeates a lot more than just baptism. But I'm focusing on baptism right here this morning. But there's negative implications for one thing. It means that this guy is going to have, be walking around with uh, false assurance. He thinks that just because he got dunked, he's okay. His sins are forgiven. Um, and and um, that's all there is to it. Uh, there's no need to develop a relationship if you got what you want without that. You just in involve yourself in a magical ritual and that takes care of it. So you go around with a false assurance. And throughout the rest of this movie, this guy's life isn't changed. He's just as he was before. But he keeps thinking that because he's baptized, he's okay. See, so it's a false assurance. It also jacks up your view of God. Um, you know, if, 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 if baptism is what magically washes away your sin, well then, if you don't get baptized, your sins aren't washed away. And that creates this weird thing where God now needs your baptism to forgive you. He wants to forgive you, but he, what, can't? Because you haven't been baptized. And that, that's kind of a weird view of God, don't you think? He, he needs this baptism to forgive you. Why? I mean, the church where I was first saved in this fundamentalist Pentecostal church, um, they taught this. They, they taught that baptism washes away your sin, and your, your sins aren't washed away unless you're baptized. In this case, unless you're baptized the right way. And the right way was the way we did it, and everyone else did it the wrong way. Uh, and they all said, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, well, we, we know that that's not what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to say in Jesus' name. And so if the wrong words are said over you, 
you're not saved. Your sins aren't washed away. And I remember, I believed that for a time because I, I thought I could see it in the Bible. That's what I was taught. But uh, I, I would wonder about, like, what would that look like on the judgment day? When, when you know, here all, the, all these people are there before Jesus. And, and, and you know, Jesus says, hey, folks, I love you. I died for you. I, I did everything I could to save you. Uh, and I know that you love me, and, and you've walked with me. Some of you made tremendous sacrifices for me, and, and we've had kind of a relationship. Um, and I'd love to let you in the pearly gates. I really, really, really would, but, but there is this technicality. You see, it's, it's, well, you weren't baptized, or you weren't baptized right. The wrong words were said over you, and, and so it's skadoodle to hell for you. I just, just move along now. Sorry, <laughs> I can't let you in. And, and, and that just struck me as kind of bizarre. And then the people would go, well, we didn't know any better. I mean, this is what we were taught. It wasn't our fault. Can we have a do-over? Now that we see it, can we, can, now can we get in? And Jesus would say, well, time's up. You know, a deal's a deal, and, 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 and the rules are rules, and so there's no back. So uh, enough shoe, just go get on your way into the eternal flames. We'll be tormented night and day forever and never and ever. So what's wrong with this picture? There's something really twisted about this. This is like a, this, this ultra anal pharisaical view of God on steroids. It's just, it's crazy. Uh, but this is the kind of thinking that, that people have about baptism, some, some, that some people have. It, it's, it permeates other areas as well, this, this let's make a deal kind of thinking. Uh, people will sometimes say, like, uh, well, the idea is that if you just pray the sinner's prayer, uh, I've shared this before in the pulpit where you find these people who think that they have this assurance because they prayed the sinner's prayer when they're five years old, even though they're living crazy now. I have no relationship, but because I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was four or five years old, grandma brought me down to the altar and I gave my heart to Jesus and prayed that prayer. Well, I, now I know that God doesn't see my sin. I'm covered by the blood. God goes blind because you prayed that prayer. That's magical thinking. Or when, 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 when people, oh God, if you give me this promotion, well, then I'll, then I'll finally start you know, giving, giving to the church. Uh, Lord, if, if you'll heal my daughter, well, then, I'll, then I'll quit looking at pornography or whatever sin that you're, you're, is plaguing you. Or the magical thinking can be along these lines. Here's the right way you need to pray. Here's the things you've got to say if you want to get that promotion, if you want to get that healing. Or the right way you have to cast out demons and bind them in this and they have all these kinds of formula. All that's magical thinking. Or if you'll just have enough faith and say it with your mouth and believe positively in your mind, well, then you'll be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. That's magical thinking. It's got to, which means if you're not healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, well, then you just don't have enough faith. And you're, you're not thinking positive enough. Uh, you're not confessing it right with your mouth. You're not doing the formula. It's magical thinking. Or a lady I knew who their basketball team lost the game because the ref made this bad call right at the end of the game. And her explanation was that God had that happen because we didn't really pray before this game. So the deal on the table apparently is that if you pray before the game, well then God will keep you from having have refs make a bad call. Uh, what if the other team also prayed? Oh, well, that's a, quite a conundrum. All these theological problems. What are we going to do, folks? I'm here to tell you this morning that God is not Monty Hall and he's not playing let's make a deal. The Christian faith is not about trying to do a set of behaviors or rituals or formulas or prayers to get God to give us something. That's, that, that's, that, God doesn't want to be uh, our little genie in a bottle that we can just rub our right prayers or right behaviors or right rituals to have them pop out and, and give us our wishes. He doesn't want to be our genie. He wants to be the lover of our souls. And see, God doesn't love us and save us because we prayed the right prayer or had the right formula or did the right thing. God saves us because he, he's in love with us and he wants to share his life with us. 
Salvation is just that, him sharing his life with us. In fact, salvation isn't, isn't something God gives us like you give a car to somebody or, or, or a horse to somebody. No, salvation is just God giving himself to us. The relationship is what is saving. It's nothing other than the life that comes out of the relationship that we have with God. So Jesus says this in, in John 17. This is just before uh, the crucifixion. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. That's what the cross is all about. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The glory of God, we teach around here quite a bit, glory is simply the radiance of God's character, the radiance of his love, the radiance of a self-sacrificial love, which is why the glory is shining some of the brightest on the cross, because the cross is the perfect display of that. That's why Jesus says this hour He's referring to the, the crucifixion. This hour is when he's going to be glorified and he's going to glorify the Father because he's going to put on display the Father's character. And then Jesus says, this is eternal life, to know you, to know you uh, as you're revealed in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. The, the knowledge is the salvation. Now, he's not talking about sort of an objective knowledge, a knowledge about God. He's talking, the, the Hebrew idea of, of, of to know someone is to have an intimate acquaintance, uh, an, an intimate knowledge with them. In fact, it's the word that's used uh, when a husband and wife consummate their marriage. They know one another. Adam knew Eve. Um, and so it's not just knowledge about. Uh, look, at I, I, can, I, can have know all, I can have all the knowledge about my wife in the world. I can know every fact about her. But that doesn't mean I'm knowing her as my wife. To know her as my wife, I have to act on what I know about her. Because of what I know about her, I commit my, commit my life to her. And we enter into this relationship where we're knowing one another, okay? But the knowledge about isn't the knowledge of. So also with God, you, you can know everything about God that you like. You can have a PhD uh, in, in the knowledge of God, in theology. You can know every verse of the Bible in the original language. You can know every fact there is to know that pertains to theology or whatever. But it doesn't do you a bit of good unless you're willing to act on it. And because of what you know, you say, I will give my life to him. And, 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 and now you enter into that relationship. Now you're getting to know him. And that is eternal life. So salvation isn't a thing we acquire because we did the right behavior or said the right prayer or got the right baptism or what have you. Salvation, salvation is nothing other than the life-giving, life-transforming, spiritually empowering, never-ending, marriage-like covenant relationship that we have with God. That is salvation. To know him in this way is what it is to be, to be saved. That is eternal life. And that's what our faith is all about. God doesn't want, he doesn't want our, our, our formulas and our rituals and our right behaviors. What he wants. There's only one thing he really wants. And that is you. That's all he wants. He wants you. He wants all of you. Uh, he's, he's given his all that he could have all of us. Like we sang a little bit ago. We surrender all. He wants your body, soul, mind, heart, every part of you. He doesn't just want the healthy part of you. He wants the sick. He wants the sick you. He doesn't just want the, the, the beautiful part of you. He wants the ugly. Give him your sick and ugly. Uh, he doesn't want just the, the whole wholeness part of you, the wholesome part of you. He wants your brokenness. 
right? He doesn't want you nice and tidied up on Sunday morning. He wants your mess. He wants you and your messiness. He doesn't want you, he just, as you're shining light, he wants the darkness in you. He doesn't just want the faithfulness in you. He wants your unfaithfulness. He doesn't just want the spiritual you. He wants the carnal you. And he doesn't want just the holy you, if there's a holy part of you. No, he wants the sinful you. He wants, he wants the sin. He wants the, the lust. He wants the greed. He wants the, the pettiness. He wants the violence. He wants the gossip. We're to give it all to him. Because see, as we give it all to him, well, that's now how he takes all this and begins to transform us. He begins to bring healing to all of us and wholeness to all of us. And see, now we're participating in the shalom of God, the wholeness of God. We're being transformed from the inside out as we surrendered all to him. We're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And, and now we're participating in the life of God, and that, folks, is salvation. We're being saved from all of our crap, right? That's why the Bible speaks of salvation in three tenses. Yeah, amen. We have been saved, we're being saved, and we shall be saved because it's a process that we're going through. It's not a magical kind of moment where, boom, now you've got everything. It's rather this, this grow, growing relationship. It's a marriage-like relationship. So here's the thing. If baptism doesn't save us, if it doesn't wash away our sins, well, then what's it all about? Why do we do it? And the answer to that is, is this. Baptism is, is, as Brianna kind of alluded to, it's the public declaration and really, the, the, in the New Testament, the inauguration of this, this marriage-like covenantal relationship with God. If you think about our relationship with God as a marriage, then, then baptism is the wedding ceremony. And whenever God inaugurated a covenant, there was a ceremony that commemorated it and was a reminder of it. And, and so baptism is our wedding ceremony as we're betrothed to Jesus Christ. That's more than just a metaphor. I mean, it is a metaphor, but it's one that's deeply grounded in Scripture. Uh, in the Old Testament, we have frequently find Yahweh being referred to as the, the groom, and Israel is his bride. And he's always struggling to get this bride to be faithful to him. And then Jesus Christ comes, and he's referred to as the bridegroom in search of a bride, over and over again. And the bride are, is the, 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 all the people who su submit to him, who accept his wedding invitation. So the church is the bride of Christ. And, and, um, and then when the, the whole thing consummates uh, in, in eternity, uh, it's, it's referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so baptism is the time at which we become betrothed to Christ, where we join the corporate bride. And by the way, God isn't a polygamist where each one of us are his brides. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's, he's, the, 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 he's got one bride, and it's all of us. It's the church. And so we align ourselves with the bride of Christ, and that's what baptism declares, that we're aligned with that. And see, whereas the magical view of baptism leaves you unchanged, and uh, gives you a false assurance, the wedding view of baptism, or the covenantal view of baptism, well, changes everything. For all the same reason that saying, I do, at the altar changes everything, or at least should change everything. Uh, this is why, in the Bible, um, uh, baptism is always associated with repentance, which we talked about two weeks ago, repentance. Uh, it's to turn around, to do an about-face. So Peter says this, for example, in, in Acts chapter 2. Peter replied, the people ask, how, how can we be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized. Well, first I want us to notice this. Uh, that when, when Peter says, repent for the forgiveness of your sins, that's what leads some people into magical thinking. Like, repent in order to get your sins forgiven. The word for there is in, in Greek, it's ace. And it sometimes can mean to cause something, in which case it would be repent 
in order to cause God to forgive your sins. But it doesn't usually mean that. And if you compare this phrase, as it, see how it's used in some Jewish writings of the time, uh, the Jews would speak about these ceremonial washings where you dedicate things to God, and they would say, do this washing for... Uh, the deliverance of Israel, or for the glory of God, or for uh, your well-being, or whatever. And in, those, in that context, it never meant to cause something. It rather meant in the light of something. Do this, because something has happened, now dedicate this thing to God. And so what Peter is saying here is, in the light of your forgiveness, uh, the forgiveness that's offered everybody, be baptized. Repent, turn from your old way, and, and now be baptized. Uh, and Paul, we saw this two weeks ago. Paul says in, first, in 2 Corinthians 5 that, that if one died for all, then all have died. Remember that? And then he says, therefore, God's not holding anyone's trespass against them. And that's the good news that we're to proclaim. Um, well, so from God's sight, it's all been forgiven. And what Peter is saying is, in light of that, in light of what Christ accomplished on the cross, turn from your old way and now be baptized. Uh, be ba- become part of the bride of Christ in light of the forgiveness that's been, been offered there. But this, this turning is, is something that is essential to what baptism is all about. It's, it's doing an about face. Just like when you get married, or at least what should happen when you get married. You, you're making a pledge. When you say, I do, you're committing to stop thinking in, your, in terms of me and start thinking in terms of we. You're turning from your single way of doing life to now a married way of doing life, and there's a, a significant difference between the two. So also, when, when, when a person is baptized, they're publicly pledging that they are now surrendering everything to Christ. They're pledging to, to now no longer live for themselves, uh, but to live in relationship with him. No longer live as a, as a me, uh, but live as a we. And the, the other partner here is, is Jesus Christ. Uh, you're, you're declaring that you're no longer going to live as Lord of your own life, as though you had ownership claims to this. Rather, you realize that everything you have belongs to him. And you submit it to him to be used as, as he directs us. And it means that you, you're pledging to go to Christ as your source of life. Uh, to, to get your core sense of worth and identity and value and significance and fullness from what God thinks about you as he's revealed it on the cross. Which means that now you're turning from the old way of life where you try to get life by how pretty you are, how cute you are, how smart you are, how religious you are, how much you achieve or how much you earn or whatever. You, know, you turn from all that, realizing it's idolatry, and you, 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 you pledge to be continually getting all your life and worth from Christ. Uh, in fact, I read a book this last week by Alan Street. Uh, it's called Sacrifice and Caesar, and it was, it's really interesting because he puts baptism in the context of, of the Roman Empire. He's an expert on the Roman Empire. And um, he, he shows how in the, throughout the Roman Empire, the glue that held everything together were pledges that people made. Uh, people made these pledges, and usually there's a ceremony around them. Like, he, you, 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 have, you had to play, uh, pledge allegiance to Rome. You pledge allegiance to Caesar. Or you pledge allegiance to your captain, uh, or, or the, the, the leader of your battalion, or to your employer. Okay, so there's all these pledges. And understood in that context, what he argues is that baptism, and he shows this right in the New Testament, baptism was this pledge, this sacred vow, that subverted all other pledges. To make Christ as Lord means that you're turning from anyone else as Lord. To pledge allegiance to Christ means you're not pledging, you don't pledge allegiance to, to anyone else as, as, as your leader. You've got one master. You can't have two masters. And so to, pledge, to, to confess Christ as Lord is to say, I've got no other lords. And to pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God, to say I'm wholly devoted to the kingdom of God, means you renounce your allegiance to any nation or tribe or whatever. Nothing else has any claim on you. Uh, to, 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 to pledge to follow the example of Christ. 
is to renounce living in the ways of the world, to follow the example of the world. And to pledge allegiance to, 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 to Christ means that you're going to, you pledge to believe what he says about you is true. And what he says about others is true. And what he says about himself is true. You're making a pledge that I am now going to bring every thought captive to Christ. I'm going to believe what God says about me, not what dad said or mom said or the abuser said or whatever. No, you, you believe what God says about you. Paul actually gets at this last, this, this last pledge in, in Romans 6. Powerful passage on baptism. All right? Some people have heard his gospel. Uh, in, in Romans 5, he's, he, he preaches that, you know, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And then some drew the ingenious conclusion that we should then go on sinning so grace could keep on abounding. Hmm, isn't that special? Uh, yeah, God likes to forgive. We like to sin. Cool arrangement. Paul, then he addresses this. He says this in verse 1. Uh, should we keep on sinning that grace may abound? And then he goes on to say, no way. No way. By no means. Make ganato in Greek. Absolutely not. It's ludicrous. How can we who die to sin go on living in it? Okay, he's saying we're dead to sin. Why would we keep on living in it? Now, where did we die? when did we die to sin? If one died for all, then all have died. 2,000 years ago, we died to sin. We just, in, in baptism, we own that. We're saying this, is, this applies to me. From God's perspective, it's offered to all, but we're saying, okay, I, 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 I will live in that. And so I've died to sin. And then he says this in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay, the word baptism means to immerse. And that's why we, we, we practice immersion baptism. And Paul is saying, if you've been immersed into Christ, okay, if you're identified with Christ, then you're, 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 you've been immersed into his death. And what he's referring to is this. He's, he's, he's reminding them of the baptism to remind them who they are. Don't you remember... When you went down in the water, you were saying, you're identified with Christ's death. So that old self is dead. That old self that rebelled against God, that old self that was addicted to sin, that old self that thought low of itself, that self is dead. And then he says this in verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death. Buried, that's the same word as baptized. Uh, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, so you died with him. You're identified with him. What happens to him happens to you. And so you died with him, and then you are raised with him. And so coming up out of the water is saying, his life is now my life. His death was my death of the old self. His life is the life of my new self. So Paul could say, it's no longer I that lives, but Christ Jesus who lives within me. The reality, folks, is that you've got resurrected life inside of you. If you're identified with Christ, his life is your life. Uh, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. The power of God Almighty is inside of you. The power to live this newness of life, to be conformed to the image of Christ, that is pulsating within you. And so Paul is saying, this is what's true about you. Why would you keep on living as though that wasn't true? Why do you keep on acting as though sin had power over you? No, you're identified with his death and you're identified with his new life. Well, then live in that. Be, be who you really are in Christ Jesus. So then in verse 11, he says this. So, so also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself. The word there in Greek is logizomai. You can notice the word logos there, which means to reason. And what he's saying is reason about yourself. Think about yourself the way you actually are. Let this be the mirror in your head. Okay? When, when you see yourself, see this. Since you are dead to sin and you are alive in Christ Jesus, think about yourself this way. 
And this is part of what it means to take every thought captive to Christ. Everything in your brain, that damaged brain of yours, we all got damaged brains in this world, but everything that disagrees with what God says about you and what baptism reminds you of, uh, put it aside and bring every thought captive to Christ. And finally, Paul says this. He says, therefore, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Uh, their passions. Look at the pattern here. Here's who you are, and baptism reminds you of this. So th th this is how you should think, and this is how you should do. Be, think, do. Be, think, do. The old self was a be, think, do that was wrong. Here's the new be, think, do that's right. Be, think, do as you are in Christ. Be, think, do. You're dead in sin, and your life to God in Christ Jesus. Be it, think it, and then do it. And see, if you're thinking it, you're going to do it, okay? So the transformation is in the renewing of our mind. Uh, folks, baptism is, is all about this. It's, this. it's our wedding ceremony, but it also functions kind of uh, like this. It, it's the tombstone of our old, old self. If you ever forget that you're dead, you look at your baptism. Oh, that's right, I went down in the water. I identified with him uh, in his death. And if you ever forget that you have newness of life, you look at your baptism. You came up out of that water, right? You're not still under that water. <laughs> uh, you'd be dead if you were under that water. No, you, you did come up. And that's you identifying with the resurrected life of Christ Jesus it's a wedding ceremony. Two, two, two final questions. Um, who should be baptized? That's a question that people get asked. And our answer is, is uh, all disciples. Uh, Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and, 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 and so we encourage you, if you're old enough to be a disciple, uh, then you're, you're a candidate for baptism. It, or think of it like a, in a wedding ceremony. Um, you're getting married. And so you should be old enough to get married. Now, in our culture, we put off marriage later and later, it seems. Late 20s and 30s and whatnot. Uh, but through, throughout most of history, uh, people got married around the time that their hormones kicked in. Which, for whatever else could be said against it, there's one positive thing about that. You don't have this long period of struggling with sexuality. But uh, uh, they get married when they're 12 or 13. That was the typical age to get married. And, and, and so we tend to think that, that is probably the, the age where, where a person, they tend to be responsible enough to make this decision. Some kids mature earlier, uh, some much later. Uh, and so parents have some discretion on this, but, but, but we think that's kind of in the ballpark. Uh, of, you know, does a child really know what you're signing up for? Because this is really a big thing. This is a big thing. It's a huge thing. And, and we want to be responsible in doing it. Um, which is the second question. Some people ask, well, what about my infant baptism? If you're baptized as an infant. It's, for some folks, that's very meaningful. And they don't want to negate that. And for some folks, they, they, they don't want to negate that or, because they're afraid of like, what, what relatives might say. It might be offensive to them. But here's how we think about this. Um, you know, in, in most of those cultures where, they, where kids got married when they're 12 or 13, usually the, 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 the marriage was arranged by the parents ahead of time. When the, before the well, they're still infants, they're, they're, they're pledged in marriage to, to another family. And um, that's how we see infant baptism. Your parents were pledging you to the Lord. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. But even in those cultures where there's a pledge, the marriage is arranged, there's a time when the two people are old enough to now get married. They, they, they own it. They're saying yes to what their parents arranged. And so we encourage people to maybe see it like this. This is, you're not negating your infant baptism. You're owning it. You're, you're, you're affirming it. Thank you, parents, for pledging me. Now I will go through with this and own it for myself. Um, and, and so we think baptism is for disciples. It's a wedding thing. And uh, we encourage all, who, all followers of Jesus to go through it.
So we have these three weeks classes. Now some people think, well, why do you need three weeks? And the answer is this. Marriage is, look, if you get married to another human, don't you usually go through pre-marriage counseling? We really recommend you go through marriage counseling in more than just three weeks. Uh, this is sort of like pre-marriage counseling to, for, for being wedded to Jesus. We really want to make sure that everybody understands what this is about because uh, it's a beautiful, powerful ceremony. And so if you have not been baptized as, as an adult, we uh, encourage you to consider taking those classes. And, and taking them doesn't mean you're committing to doing this. Just, you just want to explore what it's about. So for the next three weeks uh, during the 9 o'clock service, um, I encourage you to check out those classes. And then mark on your calendar that uh, on, on the, uh, July 30th, we're going to have this party at Phelan Park, and it's going to be beautiful and fantastic, and all sorts of celebrating things. Would you stand? I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward here, and if you're here this morning and could have any need that could use prayer, uh, and if you have a need, you probably could use prayer, come up here and by the stairs, and we all have prayer teams that would love to minister to you. Um, and if you're here this morning and you're not a, a devoted follower of Jesus, you're not, you're not surrendered, um, but maybe there's something that's pulling on your heart right now that says, you know, I, I probably should do that. I, I encourage you to listen to that inner voice and come up here and just talk to these folks, and they'd love to get you started in, in, in uh, your, your walk with God. Praise God. Isn't God good? God's good. We got, we got a good spouse. We got a good spouse. We got a great spouse. Fantastic spouse. I don't know where your earthly marriages are, but you got one marriage that's spectacular. And, uh, and, and that's, that's the all-important one, praise God. Father, as we leave this place, I pray we do it as, as a faithful bride of Christ. I pray we do it as a people who are aware that we are identified with you in your death and identified with you in newness of life. And Holy Spirit, will you just be working in our lives to manifest that newness of life, reminding us of that newness of life, to not be thinking in terms of the old, but be living in terms of the new, that we may radiate... Glorify you and radiate on all the people we come in contact with throughout this week. In Jesus' name. And all God's people, the bride of Christ said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out. Love your neighbor.